Welcome to America's Land Auctioneer. I am Kevin Piper. It's great to be with you today, and I appreciate everybody tuning in today to another episode of America's Land Auctioneer. Think about it, folks. I have probably the best job in America. With me today is the American wine girl, Carolyn Pfeiffer. Welcome, Carolyn. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. It is so good to have you back. How you been? I've been good, you know, just living the wine life, the wine girl life. You enjoy it. Well, you're not really a girl anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. Wine woman life. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're actually closer to 30 than you are 20. And I can't tell people (gasps) old you. (laughs) No, I'm in the middle. I'm I'm equally. Yeah, you're in there. But you've had a fascinating career as the American wine girl and. It's it's pretty incredible. I I follow you every day and uh, see what you're doing and where you're at, where you're traveling. And mm-hmm. uh, today you're in studio with us. So how does it feel to be back? I'm in North Dakota. It's cold here. Very it's really cold. cold. Yeah, it it, <laughs> it it has a tendency to get a little bit cold up into this part of the country. But you know, for a lot of people that are listening today, they're wondering what's the American. Uh, Wine girl doing on the show with America's Land Auctioneer. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some similarities in our professions. You know, we like we discussed on our first episode, you know, winemaking. It all starts in the vineyard and winemakers are first and foremost farmers. And, you know, farmland all kind of goes together. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it. it. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun to dive into something that you're really not familiar with, and again, I may know a lot about agriculture. I may know a lot about uh, cattle and corn and soybeans and all that, but when it comes to your profession, you know, viticulture and that type of thing, mm-hmm. I you know probably don't know as much about it as I would like. I mean, I probably have been on forty or fifty vineyards and met with winemakers all over the United States and in Italy. When we were, remember when we were over in Italy, when you schooled over there, yes. when you were in college at the University of Minnesota. But mm-hmm. but again, it's always fascinating to sit down with you and not only have a glass of wine with you, but talk about yeah. uh, the vineyards and the fact. And one thing I really appreciate about you more than anything is you understand more so than a lot of people in your generation, especially that it really all does start with the land and the soil, which is kind of interesting that you take that perspective. Yeah. And something that I kind of want to talk about today is what makes us a successful grapevine, because to have a really good bottle of wine, you need a really good crop. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to dive into that, aren't yeah. we? But yeah, but but again, now for a lot of you that haven't listened to us before, the America America's Land Auctioneer Show we're going to talk about a variety of different topics every week. And, and today it's going to be kind of a mixture of farmland valuations, which is kind of a continuing discussion, basically, that we had on our first episode. And hopefully a lot of you were able to, to listen to that. But we're going to talk about the ABCs of buying land, you know, you know, making it fun and enjoyable. And a lot of the different factors, you know, the consideration, like location or profile of the land, that type of thing. You know, whether you want cropland or pasture land, or like in Carolyn's case, maybe you want a vineyard. Right. Maybe you want to own a vineyard somewhere. I mean, for Mm -hmm. me, I don't have any illusions at all about being a winemaker. I do not want to be a winemaker, but I'd love to own a vineyard. That's a whole different deal, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, there's a lot of different parts to creating wine. So you've got 
your viticulturists and your vineyard managers and your farmers basically that grow the crop and then being a winemaker is kind of something totally different than yeah. that. I think a lot of people, they go to wine country uh, with their friends or family or whatever, and, and they think, oh, the romance of the life of uh, having a vineyard and, and being a winemaker, uh, but they don't get to go behind the curtain, look at all the ABCs and the risks associated with being a winemaker versus just a vineyard yeah. owner. Well, it's interesting because the wine industry kind of has this, you know, snottiness about it or you think of hundreds of dollars for a bottle or a nice restaurant and you just kind of think about that. But if you go, like you said, behind the curtain, these people making the wine, they've got dirty jeans on, cowboy boots, they're getting their hands dirty. And that's really a a lot of hard work that goes into making these elegant, sophisticated wines. And it's not cheap. I mean, to invest in a a winemaking business today and then all the risk associated with it. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to, there's so much competition. You have to sell it. You know, you have to go up against some of the best wines, not only in the country, but worldwide. So you got got sales and merchandising and marketing and all those different types of things. And I'm thinking... You know, I think a lot of people get kind of pulled in and they think, ah, it'd be great to have my own winemaking business. But, you know, when I look at it, I would just like to have a 20, 30 acre vineyard in Sonoma Valley or Napa Valley with a beautiful home. And that's kind of the extent of my experience I want to plunge into. Focus on the crop, how someone else make the wine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a lot of of people that buy land, they're kind of that way. But Mm -hmm. again... In a, at America's Land Auctioneer Show, we're going to talk a lot about in the fu- today and in the future about the ABCs of buying land. You know, whether it's a vineyard or buying cropland or grazing land in the Western Dakotas or Wyoming or wherever it might be. We're going to talk a lot about hunting land. You know, what can you expect for your returns and values on land? Inflation, appreciation, and the value of that land. You know, does it have good water, good access, and the other thing in our part of the country, easements and any types of restrictions or anything like that. And then we get further down the road, a lot of topics we want to dive into, and we did some polling before we started our show. A lot of people want to talk about land and the minerals associated with it. And in our part of the country, that's a big deal. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. think about it, oil and coal. Exactly, yeah. You know, you get out in the Bakken and some of the, you know, the Three Forks formation and these different formations of oil and coal and that type of thing. And, you know, there's the questions of do I do I sell my land and separate from minerals? Or if I'm buying land, do I get the minerals with it? What are minerals? Or, or what's aggregate? Is it gravel, sand, clay, scoria? Or is it oil, coal, or gas? You know, there's so many things. Uh, when I sell land, can I retain my mineral interest? So, we have a whole segment. We could talk for two shows, basically, on lands and minerals and, you know, can I make an exception in the deed when I sell? Can I can I uh, sever the minerals from the land and retain those for my family or put them in a mineral trust or whatever it might be? Is it better to sell the land with minerals and however you want to approach that? And then also, we're going to get into some pretty interesting discussions about the diversity of agriculture in America and one good example, Carolyn, and we touched on this in our first episode, is Wisconsin is an intriguing state. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be actually on site in Wisconsin this summer, aren't we? Yes, I can't wait. You know, it 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 still is America's Dairyland, but Wisconsin agriculture, when you think about it, has transformed itself and reinvented itself in many many ways. You know, a lot of people of my generation, you know, I'm a baby boomer. You know, we think of Wisconsin as dairy farms, uh, the old stanchion milk barns and that type of thing with the pipelines and whatever. And 
But, you know, today's agriculture in Wisconsin is really fascinating to me. I think it's a great template. So we're going to be out there. They've diversified into organic farming, vegetable and fruit farming. Cranberry bogs. You ever been to a cranberry bog? No, but I've always wanted to go. Well, we're going this year to Wisconsin. Okay. Hey, we'll even grab Maurice and we'll go up there. But uh, the, yes. we're going to we're gonna go to Wisconsin. We're going to be at a cranberry bog, and we're going to be doing that. Uh, but, again, uh the fascinating part about that area of the, of the country to me is the the way they re- basically have reinvented agriculture there, but yet they rely on a lot of the traditionals and basics of farming. Okay, interesting. So are you going to join me on that trip? Absolutely. I'll bring some wine and we can pair it with the cheese. Yep. We'll hit some of the more traditional cheese plants and some yeah. of the better family-owned cheese plants in Wisconsin. And we're going to share that with our audience too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think when we're out there, Carolyn, what do you think of this idea? Should we do Should we do some live video? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that we should incorporate some video. That, that would be that, fun. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't yeah. it? You know, mm-hmm. you think about that. That that would be, I think that'd be pretty cool. And then our audience, our listening audience, could actually go on and, and they can view that, right? Yeah. And where would they do that at? We will make a YouTube channel. Oh, we'll have be... this all up on YouTube um, and then also on both of our blogs. So you've got the America's Land Auctioneer blog and then my website, theamericanwinegirl.com. So. Yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. So, mm-hmm. so folks, you probably don't know this. I have a face for radio. Carolyn's got a face for TV. So <laughs> that'll be fascinating for you. You'll probably enjoy that a lot more than I will. So, so <laughs> that, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. So we got a lot of topics to cover and you made a commitment to me a couple months ago that you were going to help co-host the show on and off throughout the balance of this year, right? Oh, yeah. I'll be here. Yep. You'll be here. And as we travel throughout, you know, where you're at, Virginia, we'll be at some wineries in Virginia. Yes. We'll definitely do a show out there. Maybe go to California wine country. There's multiple places in California we could go. And What's your favorite winery vineyard in virginia where you live and i know you live you live in probably one of the most historical states in america but Mm -hmm. charlottesville virginia or seaville as it's called the home of the university of virginia what uh what what would be your favorite winery there and why Ooh, i love veritas um vineyards it's a great winery because it's all family owned so it all started with the parents and now the kids kind of run it they grow all their own grapes on site they make their wine um, the winemaker is actually female as well. I got to chat with her a couple months ago. Um, and it's it's just, it's beautiful. They also have an event center on site. So people host corporate events and weddings there, but they kind of do it all. And the wines are really, really good. What's so. your, so red, whites, what's your favorite wine? Oh, in Virginia, we do a really great job of making Meritage blends, which is a different name in America for Bordeaux blends. So it's going to be your blend of Cab Sauve, Merlot, Petit Bordeaux. Those are my favorite. And of those, what would be your favorite of all of those? Well, that, so all of those grapes blended into one bottle is my favorite. So blends are awesome because you can take the best characteristic from each varietal grown that year and make it into a really elegant wine. Um, but we also make great Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. Viognier is a really great varietal that does really well in Virginia um, that a lot of people aren't quite familiar with, especially in America. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, we we do a lot of really, really great different types of wine. That's, that's fascinating to me. State of Virginia, not California. So that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty neat. Well, folks, we're going to be talking about that when we come back with the American Wine Girl. We're also going to be talking again and continuing discussion on land values and all those types of things. But, Carolyn, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back with our audience in a bit. Sounds good. $1,000 bit, $2,000 where, $1,750 here now, too. Sold your way for $1,750. Welcome back to today's show, America's Land Auctioneer. Thank you for joining us and being with us today. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. And with me today is not only a great guest in studio, but my co-host today, America's number one wine influencer, the <laughs> oh, American wine girl. In Karen, your opinion. Carolyn. Thank you. I'm a little I'm a little biased, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, yes. So the American wine girl, Carolyn mm-hmm. Pfeiffer, is in studio with us today. Are you enjoying the show today? Oh yeah. It's so fun to be here. Yeah, I'm glad I, I can co host. Yeah, I appreciate you coming and helping us out with the show. And I'm gonna hold your promise that you made a few months ago that you're gonna help co host the show here throughout the balance of the year. And and hopefully we're bringing you folks uh, a lot of the topics and material that you want to learn and hear about. And uh, I think it's kind of fascinating just for me to sit here and talk to Carolyn and learn more about her profession and you know her what she does every day of her life so that's kind of interesting but if you have any ideas reach out to us reach out to us and you know you can email me at kpiper at pifers.com at uh, i spend most of my daily life at uh, pifers auction and realty and land management where mm-hmm. we sell uh, and buy farmland but mostly sell farmland at auction for clients and then also manage hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland for investors and retired farmers and which is kind of a fascinating life don't you think Carolyn it's very interesting whenever anyone asks me like what my parents do and I say that my dad's an auctioneer they think it's like the coolest thing ever yeah they're like wait does he talk really fast like that's so cool (laughs) yeah it it is a pretty interesting profession I like it but you know I think yours your life is pretty interesting too and Pretty neat in a way. It's, it's probably a lot more sexy than mine is. But <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And anyhow, uh, you know, earlier, well, our first episode, we talked a lot about land valuations and everything that goes into that equation for investing and buying land and that type of thing. And, you know, I never really got to get back to some of the basics. And we're going to talk a little bit about, about that and about how important the, the diversity of the soil is and the productivity is all important and all of that. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, you know, they use a soil productivity indexing for that. Uh, and then also crop rotation and all those things are important. And I remember, Carolyn, in our first episode, you had asked, you know, for yourself, kind of a probably a, a novice investor in farmland, you know, where do you even really start, right? How would yeah. you even go about it? Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people my age don't, you know, they know that land is probably a good investment, but we don't really know how to get started. So. Yeah. Well, I think it's really cool. And especially, you know, with COVID and everything, a lot of people are wanting or dreaming about going outside of the box, mm-hmm. maybe out of the city, out of the suburbs and saying, you know what, it'd be nice to own 10 acres or 100 acres. Right. Or, you know, and obviously you can't buy a big sprawling ranch if you're just starting out in life or mm-hmm. you don't have the financial wherewithal. But, you know, everybody can own a piece of farmland, right? Don't you think? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They should. Now, like in your particular profession, you know, to be a, a, a vineyard owner 
or viticulturist, mm-hmm. which is kind of a co- scientific combination of the mm-hmm. of the grower and the winemaking and that type of thing. That is a whole different deal, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, vines are, you know, they're an expensive crop, but they're also, they can be kind of complicated. They're very particular because, you know, you have to get everything kind of just right in order to have a successful grape that will produce a good wine. And then climate's important. Yeah. So, I mean, with vines for winemaking, you really want to focus on the terroir. And terroir in terms of wine has to do with four things. That's climate, soil, terrain, and tradition. So climate being that first one, it's you can kind of break up climate into three different types. So you've got your warm, moderate, and cool climates. Um, and some grapes can grow in all of these climates, like Chardonnay can grow in all of those. But How about pe- my favorite, Pinot Noir? Pinot Noir is more cool to moderate climate. Really? So it could never grow in like a warm climate like Argentina or something like so that. So that's why probably some of my favorite Pinots are up in Oregon or Washington. Then. Yeah, definitely, because it's a lot cooler up there. They have the influence from the ocean. Um, yeah, so it's really fascinating. You know, when I was in Napa, a year ago, and I've been to Napa and Sonoma, I don't even know how many times, a number of times. I had a Pinot in Alexander Valley, mm-hmm. which is more north and a little bit west of Sonoma. I, I mm-hmm. was impressed with their Pinots. Yeah, I mean, Sonoma also makes really great Pinot Noir because it is a little bit closer to the coast, um, whereas Napa, it's more down in the valley. It's considered a much warmer climate. And Sonoma, even though they're right next to each other, they both actually have very different climates. And so Sonoma grows more of that Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, a lot more sparkling wines come from that because it's a cooler climate. Um, But yeah, it's just because it's closer to that large body of water, the Pacific Ocean, that brings in a cooling influence. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, when you think about it, you when I when I think of agriculture, first thing I think of is oh, the soil. You got to have great soil, and that's kind of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you want to have a, a lengthy growing season, and you want to have uh, you know all those heat units they talk about when you're raising corn or soybeans or canola. But you know, a lot of people, you know, you think they don't really focus on the climate as much as maybe a, a viticulturist would, right? I mean, they focus. Right. They really focus on the climate. I mean, they're not just going to go plant a vineyard anywhere because, I mean, it costs, what, ten to 15000 or more? Or more in some parts. Just to plant an acre of grapes. Exactly. It's crazy. I, I mean, mean, there's some places are $20,000 an acre, right? I know in Virginia right now it's definitely more towards that 20000 But um, I guess in general, you know, grapes, they thrive between that 30th and 50. Um, if a degree latitudes when you're looking at the world map. So you would never want to plant something, you know, way up north or, you know, farther south. So it's kind of staying in there and, yeah, focusing on the climate. I think that's the number one most important thing. But also, like you said, soil is really important too. Well, you know, in this part of the country where, you know, think of this, you were born here in in the Red River Valley, one of the greatest mm-hmm. farming regions in the world, um, kind of reminds me of Flevoland in the, in the Netherlands, in New Holland, where they have some of the best land in the world for raising sugar beets and alfalfa and that type of thing. But, you know, you think about here, you know, we can raise a lot of great crops. We can raise sugar beets, we can potatoes, corn, soybeans, canola, sunflowers, whatever. Uh, but really, when it comes to raising grapes here, the land, ironically, is almost so good that you create too much of a lush grape that almost has like too much water. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, don't you think that farmers 
traditional farmers, the corn and soybean, the the small grain guys who raise wheat, barley, whatever, they they probably are looking at this a whole lot differently than somebody who owns a vineyard and the viticulturist, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, like you said, the soils out here, like rich, fertile soils that are really heavy and compacted, they don't drain well. So it would produce an overly vigorous vine that would then have those shallow, weak root systems. So really, we actually want our vines to have some stress on them. Otherwise, you know, the fertile soils will contribute to the leaves and all of the greenery um, being too vigorous and then it wouldn't produce the good it's all about the fruit we want the fruit to be small berries really concentrated in their flavors and sugars so yeah i mean soil the soil here is like too good for vines i guess (laughs) so that's interesting so i would i'd probably be a an old vine vineyard guy because i'm kind of stressed right so (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you think about the hundred year old vines out in california yeah so think okay so that's interesting so the more stressed the grape, probably the more flavor, ironically, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the actually, so, you know, if you think about quality versus quantity, you actually would kind of want a lower yield because then the berries might be smaller. You might have less of them, but each one of those berries is going to be so flavorful, so concentrated with its sugar and acidity that it will then make a really beautiful wine. Would that be the same for red versus white grapes? Or Yeah, definitely. And I mean, all grapes are kind of harvested at different times of the year. Whites typically are harvested before reds. Um, you want red grapes to hang on the vine longer so that their uh, sugars can get a lot more concentrated. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you kind of want that for all types of grapes for, for winemaking. You know, that's interesting when you think about it because, you know, here you have different types of crops and uh, the maturity of crops. Uh, you might buy have like an 85-day corn or a 90-day corn or whatever it might be. But, yeah, you know, I guess all agriculture has its uh, particulars and when you're mm-hmm. going to plant them, when you're going to harvest them, that type of thing. And I know vineyards are more of a—they are a perennial crop, not an annual crop. But right. fascinating information. But tell you what, we're going to come back and we're going to touch on that. Carolyn, we got some people that have emailed us with some questions. So awesome. we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and get back into your segment a little bit more. Does that sound good? Yes, sounds good. <laughs> Welcome back to today's show of America's Land Auctioneer. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, and in studio is my favorite guest of all time and co-host, the American wine girl, Carolyn Pfeiffer. Thank you again for being here today. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you all for joining us today. We are moving along on all the topics and conversation that we promised earlier. Uh, we're getting all kinds of text messages and, and emails in here. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about land valuations, about different types of wines and vineyards and that type of thing. One of our audience uh, listeners here wanted to know, what's considered great cropland? And that question, Carolyn, might probably be more for me. Yes. And then we got some <laughs> questions that are coming in on you. So what is considered great cropland? Well, uh, that's that's a pretty loaded question, but I mm-hmm. can address that. You know, really, when I look at cropland, if, you know, and, and obviously if I'm a buyer of cropland, I'm going to really, first of all, I'm going to look at the soil. Because to me, 
like you had said before, even in as a winemaker, it all goes back to the soil, right? You're a farmer first. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to the soil. Now, it's obviously a lot different in corn and soybean and wheat country than it is for vineyards because obviously, like you said in our earlier segment, you want to have a vine and a grape that's going to be a little bit more stressed. Right, yep. So now if I'm raising a traditional crop, up in this part of the country or anywhere in the United States or across the across the world, you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna look at something that can raise an abundant crop. You're gonna want a high yielding crop. Uh, obviously quality is always important, no matter whether it's a a, a grape uh, or whether it's a a fruit or a vegetable in the San Joaquin Valley or whether it's wheat with the right protein here in the Dakotas and Minnesota or wherever it might be. But Getting back to our question from one of our listeners, what's considered great cropland? First of all, you got to start with the soil. It's got to be it's got to be good soil, and it's got to be a high producing soil. But also another important part is the diversity of the soil, because with diversity comes that crop rotation. Because again, if you want weed control, pest control management, that type of thing, you have to be able to be in a position where you can rotate crops because. You're not going to be able, if you're raising an annual crop, you can't raise the same crop every year because then you're going to run into all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. You want to replenish the microbes in the soil, obviously, and you want to also be able to control the pests. You want a good pest control management program. Uh, You might have different diseases or molds or that type of thing. So, again, you want diversity in your soil. You want good soil, first of all. You want a high soil productivity index in there. But then diversity, you want that so you can have that crop rotation. Maybe this year you're putting in corn. Next year it might be wheat. It might be a cereal grain, wheat or barley. And then the following year it might be soybeans. Maybe the third year it's sugar beets. Or if you're in certain parts of our area where we're at here, especially in the northern end of the valley here, maybe it's potatoes. Maybe you put potatoes in the rotation or whatever. And then, again, you got to be also cognizant of chemicals that are used on these crops. So then rotation even becomes a little bit more important. So you got to talk, you got to get into all of those different reasons uh, for, okay, yeah, I got great cropland, but can I have all of that diversity with it? And in most cases, you can if you're focusing on, on great cropland. The other thing is, too, is, you know, this is really important. People don't really realize this, but you got to have, you got to make sure that your land drains well you know and and in this part of the country where it's really flat do i have a lot of chronic issues with with wetlands or is there too much water on the land is it does it does it drain properly and and then also tiling you know a lot of people are tiling land now okay what what exactly is that well tiling is basically it's tile underneath the ground it's like a big pipe underneath the ground yeah you didn't know that no yeah Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know what? And that helps with drainage, is yeah. what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. Actually, what it does is, and they do pattern tile where they'll they'll put these the, the tile under the ground, they'll bury these tiles, and they'll do it, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's every four feet or 12 feet or 20 feet or whatever, pattern tile it, or they might just do some trunk tiling. But it's to bring out the excess moisture so that, you know, your crop doesn't drown out. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And then the other neat benefit of tiling is it actually, if you can, if you can if you can remove that water earlier in the year, like late winter, early spring, because it'll drain year round, even in this part of the country, is it'll actually help warm up the soil earlier in the spring. Oh, okay. So, you know, 
and that what that does it extends your growing season yeah you know in our part of the country you know if you're raising an 85 day corn versus a 90 it could have a huge impact on your yield and what you produce so mm-hmm. for the farmer that just means more hopefully more yield and more money right yeah that's awesome so that's really really important and then again mm-hmm. you know one another thing is it might seem basic too but you know for great cropland getting back to the question is you know you want to have good access too obviously you got to have great access right. you know and here in this part of the country for the most part everything's pretty flat and square right we have our mm-hmm. our sections every mile so again you could you have uh, you have some pretty good access to, you know, for the most part good access but, but again getting back to that question Great soil productivity indexing. You've got to have the powerful soils that can pack a good punch and then also diversity. Those are the two things. Nice. Carolyn, got an email for you. Got all one right. here. Got one here for the American Wine Girl. Our listener. Hey, this one's all the way from Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> so, oh wow. I don't, I don't I don't know what station they picked up on because because <laughs> we're on WDAY here in Fargo, nine seventy, mm-hmm. eleven hundred the flag. 1100 the flag west in Tioga and Willison out in the Bakken mm-hmm. and KFYR in Bismarck 550, which when I was a kid listening to KFYR, we could hear them all the way up near Laramore, my hometown, Western Grand Forks. That's like mm-hmm. 300 miles. So yeah. again, maybe our listeners are picking this up. Of course, they could be online too, listening yes. online. And I listen to a lot of stations online when I travel. But uh, our, our listener in uh, Omaha wants to know, uh, they're pretty fascinated with you, Carolyn, uh, and your life here. So they want to know, how did you get so involved in in your interests in vineyards and winemaking and mm-hmm. pairings of wines and foods? Well, I think a lot of it started with you and mom. I mean, you guys have always really been passionate about wine. And I think you being so passionate about agriculture and just always sharing with us, you know, um, your passion for that and knowing that winemaking all starts in the vineyard and we did our first trip out to Napa and Sonoma, and I just fell in love with how beautiful the country is out there and all the vines, but then also just the culture surrounding wine. Um, when I studied out abroad in Florence, Italy, it's all just like this beautiful industry where a lot of wineries are family-owned, so it brings families together. It brings people around the table with wine and food and just the whole culture of it. So I, I kind of knew I was like, I need to like do something with my job that has to do with wine. And so I, I, the other thing that I think is really fascinating about, you know, your background and your career is just the, the simple pairing of wine and food and how good wine will bring out a different taste in the food and vice versa, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's honestly one of my favorite parts about wine is the wine and food pairing aspect of it. It's super fun. Um, I mean, you can always come up with different recipes and it's also fun because you, you know, you have wines from all over the world and then their dishes that, that pair with that. So it's just understanding, you know, different regions and, um, their cultures and food as well. It's Did fun. you know that you can actually pair wine with ice cream? Really? Yeah. I never have. I do all the time. What's your go-to pairing? I, well, first of all, I got to get back to what I like for ice cream. Okay. What are my two favorite ice creams? Well, oh, Juneberry ice cream. And? Choke cherry. Yes. Juneberry ice cream, chokeberry, choke cherry ice choke cream. Cherry manufactured and produced pride dairy up in botno north dakota it's so good my go-to wine a pinot of course (laughs) (laughs) i think i would like maybe like a strawberry ice cream with like a rosé that would be amazing too yeah i feel like that would would be be really good good. Yeah. yeah you know actually of course 
ice cream is a big staple in my diet. Of course. <laughs> you know yes, that, right? Yes. And 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 what's my favorite topping? Chocolate? Uh-uh. Oh, butterscotch. But I know, <laughs> I know. I don't know why I said chocolate. Butterscotch. Yeah. Do you did you know that you could actually pair with vanilla, French vanilla ice cream and butterscotch? You could also pair it with a pinot? Well, I, I mean, I, I believe, and like we said before, you know, it's all about preference, but I think I would pair your butterscotch topping with like a buttery oaky Chardonnay. Ooh, that, I'm going to try that next time. Yeah. So from what vineyard, from where? Um, Let's say Sonoma. Sonoma really? has some great ones. Maybe Kundi. I know that's yeah. one of our favorites. They make a really beautiful Chardonnay that's aged partially in oak, maybe a little bit of stainless. So you get some of that oak, vanilla, coconut influence in the wine, which would be really good with butterscotch. Oh, that yeah. I'm gonna have to try that. So kind yeah. of a buttery type chardonnay. We, we need to get you on some other pairings that are not <laughs> pinot. <laughs> well, everybody has their go-to wine, That's right? That's true. Yeah. And pinot is a good wine because it's got high acidity and fruit flavors, so it is gonna pair nicely with a lot of different things. You know, it's not too heavy. It's not too tannic, but um, there's so many wines out there. There are. Yeah, yeah, there's so many food and wine pairings. So I never really drank a Sauvignon Blanc until you and your sister kind of got me hooked on it. Mm-hmm. But Sauvignon Blanc could probably be okay. Sauvignon Blanc is great. I mean, one of my favorite pairings with that is to kind of pair it with like a, a veggie side or like a lighter cheese, like a brie or a goat cheese. Um, Sauvignon Blanc is great with like broccoli, asparagus, because it's got herbaceous notes in there. So the Sauvignon Blanc grape. uh is that, is that good when it's stressed too? Absolutely. I mean, all vines really, you don't want them to have like too much water. Um, so that's always an important thing to remember. But Sauvignon Blanc is kind of known more for the cool to moderate climate areas. So some of my favorite Sauvignon Blancs come from New Zealand. They also come from Sansar region in France, France, which is definitely cooler. It has a lot of minerality in the soil. So... Awesome. It's a good one. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed drinking uh, the Sauvignon Blanc over the last couple of years, gotten into it. But I'm going to have to try that Chardonnay with yes. my ice cream next time. So, yes. you know, I've been trying to remove ice cream from my staple, from my diet, but I just can't. You only live once. I know. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a way to kind of celebrate what you did that day. Yeah. Why not? Go yeah. out go out and treat yourself to a really good ice cream or a dessert or whatever exactly. it might be. Exactly. My go-to is dark chocolate and a cap sauce. So. Oh, that's awesome too. Yeah. Well, folks, I tell you what, we're going to have to we're going to have to take a quick break here, Carolyn. All right. Uh, the American Wine Girl, thank you for being with us, but folks, we'll be back right after this break. Somebody get a new 35 and I have sold it to you right there. Good bird, just great bye. Been on here now, fifty thousand dollar bid now, twenty five bid thirty. Alvin twenty five bid on thirty and one thirty thousand dollars here now. They're gonna be now thirty thousand dollar bid and now five. Welcome back, folks, to today's segment of America's Land Auctioneer. Thank you for joining us today. I know we're hitting on a variety of different topics today, and whenever the American wine girl Carolyn Pfeiffer is in studio, I have a tendency to lean more towards her profession and her topics because I find it so fascinating. It's unbelievable uh, how incredible your career and your profession is. It's really interesting. The one thing I love about wine is there's always more to learn. It's, you know, you can really dive deep and 
there's a lot more that I, I still don't know. So I'm learning every day. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, we've been talking about land valuations, farmland investing, and all those types of things when it comes to agricultural land. Uh, in future episodes, we're going to be talking about land and minerals. We're going to be talking about farmland management. We're going to be traveling across the United States this summer, both you and I, and we're going to be in different parts of rural America, and we're going to be focusing on different types of crops, and we're going to be telling the story from an agricultural perspective and how important certain crops are to certain areas. And again, getting back to the land investing, and then we're going to be also touching base here on some some of our audience members have sent some more questions via email. But, you know, Carolyn, there's one thing we didn't talk about earlier when when, when we had a question in here. Mm-hmm. I th- the important part about this farmland investing situation is I think it's important if you're looking at farmland as an asset class, you know, there really is no future in poor land. And I think that's an important uh, rule for everybody to remember. You know, it's it's probably not as true as it was 100 years ago, but basically that's saying there's no future in poor land. Basically what it means is that in some cases, no matter what you do as a landowner or as a farmer or as a grower, the soils, the soil productivity isn't likely to be increased that much more and it may it, it may not make it worthwhile to even have it in production you might want to put it into the conservation reserve program you may want to just set it aside and keep it as wildlife habitat or whatever so again if you're buying land and you want to have it as an investment remember that go go back to the soils and if you don't know enough about it Ask a farmland manager. Go to Pfeiffer's and, and talk to their farmland management specialist, and they'll be able to help you out. Because you have to remember, the cost of your seed, your fertilizer, your chemicals for weed and insect control, your diesel fuel and gas, and your equipment depreciation, uh, you know, they, they're, those costs are going to be the same. They're going to be the same on good land as they are poor land. They don't discriminate. So, again, you have to remember all of that. So as an investor in farmland, and we had some some interest in that earlier, let's focus on the ABC and the basics. Buy good land. There's a future in good land, but there certainly isn't in poor land. Now, Carolyn, uh, we have, uh, uh, looks like Marie in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, where you went to college at the U of M. Yes. They wanted to know... How you learn so much about wine, and obviously you have a degree in business from the University of Minnesota, one of the great universities in America. Not mm-hmm. quite as great as the University of North Dakota, uh, right? Maybe, yeah, yeah, I don't and, know. Yeah, well, we don't want to get into all that. But they wanted to know, basically, did you have education beyond getting your business degree from the University of Minnesota to, to learn more about wine? Yeah, so there's a couple of different routes that you can take if you are interested in studying wine. Of course, you can become a sommelier. Um, that is the CMS route, so the Certified Masters of Sommelier. So that's sommeliers. They're, you know, those wine professionals that work in restaurant or hospitality, and they really help customers pick out a great wine to go with their meal. Personally, I didn't want to take that route. I wanted to be more of a wine writer, more of a wine educator, and really share my experiences with my audience. So I um, took the WSET route, which stands for Wine and Spirits Education Trust. It's actually based out of the UK, um, but you can take their classes all over the world. And um, it, it helps you to become a wine professional and a wine expert. So 
I recently just passed my level three um, with distinction. I took that with the Napa Valley Wine Academy. I had my exam this past August where I had to do a couple blind tastings, a theory portion. Um, I studied for that for like three or four months it was. So it was definitely challenging, but there's another um, course after. The, it would be my diploma level, which would take me two to three years to finish that. So, so. anybody can actually, if they are interested, they could do this WSET, you said? Yeah. <laughs> if, if you want to learn more about wine, I mean, start with level one. Um, and you can actually, t- especially nowadays with COVID and everything, everything's kind of online. So you can go through the Napa Valley Wine Academy, or if there's one locally, a different wine school you want to go through, you can take wine classes online. And how many levels in the WSET? In the WSET, there is four. So I passed level three. Um, level four is a diploma level, though, so it actually includes six courses and a research paper. Um, so that is going to take me at least two years to complete. So somebody told me one time that the WSET, there's only, what, a couple hundred people that even have that right now in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, levels one and two, they're a little bit more common. Once you jump up to level three, um, it's it's a, a lot bigger step. So being level three certified, you really are a wine professional. You know your stuff. Um, not a lot of people have it. Um, and then especially your diploma level, once you get that, you, you're pretty much, you, you know everything you need to know about wine. I mean, not everything because there's always more to learn, but you're basically at the top of your game for that. So, Marie, if you want to learn more about it, uh, they you can people can also follow you on Instagram or Facebook, right? Can, yeah, Carolyn, I mean, people can always, you can email me, you can DM me. My email is carolyn at theamericanwinegirl.com. That's also my website. You can follow me on Facebook at The American Wine Girl or on Instagram at American Wine Girl. Um, I love it when people, you know, DM me or ask me questions. So. Yeah, I, I really like the... Uh, your your podcasts and your posts when you talk about different wines and you know every day you got a different story i thought Mm -hmm. it was really neat here not too long ago uh and again it kind of piqued my interest because the history buff that i am Mm -hmm. uh, one of my great experiences i've had in, in in napa valley has been with the mandavi family i'm a big i'm a big fan of what they've done you know they uh, the Mandavis obviously immigrated from Italy to mm-hmm. the United States, uh, but they didn't go directly to California. They they stopped in Virginia, Minnesota, mm, and they made their living in the mines in Virginia, Minnesota. Wow! Uh, but Peter and Robert Mandavi's dad basically every year he would go to mostly to Lodi, California, okay. and parts of Napa, and he would buy wine and bring it back for their family. Interesting. And, and this is kind of interesting. And their father, actually, he would even put red wine in his coffee. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. And I've tried it. It actually isn't that bad. I guess they're both kind of bitter. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. it would be a good combo. And then they and then they transitioned. It's an inter- interesting story. If you ever if you ever have an opportunity, read the story of uh, Robert Madavi, and I think it's called The Great Harvest. I've read his book a number of times, and mm-hmm. I just find it so fascinating. The thing I love about him more than anything is his passion. He yeah, a- and I mean, he really was a true pioneer in the California wine industry. And I know he wasn't one of those guys that was just like selfish and kept all his secrets to himself he really helped everyone in california get started and shared his knowledge and 
shared his land and all of that. So yeah, he really helped that area and all those farmers and 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 viticulturists make it out there. And he yeah. obviously a pioneer. But getting kind of back to one of your posts you had. One of your posts was of a of a Charles Krug wine, and we're going to talk about that in another segment. But that is that is the oldest winery in Napa Valley, California, owned by the Peter Mandavi family. Right. Yep. It started in 1861, I believe. But super great wines. We just visited there a couple months ago, and it's definitely a classic in Napa. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance, go to the Charles Krug Winery in northern Napa Valley. Uh, obviously, just an incredible winery, and they make some great wines. You know, this segment has been, and this show, this show has been fascinating. I know we've kind of bounced around, talked about a lot of different topics. It's always great to have Carolyn Pfeiffer, the American wine girl with us. Carolyn, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. We, we, we certainly do appreciate it. And I know there's a lot of questions we didn't get to answer today from our listeners, but, you know, we'll be back next week. And again, I want to thank all of you for joining us today on America's Land Auctioneer. Now one, 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 one